Welcome back to the Wise Athletes Podcast. For episode number 79, Glenn and I are joined by Steve Hendricks, the author of the book, The Oldest Cure in the World, about the practices, benefits, and history of fasting. If you want to be healthier, have a better relationship with food, discover a powerful tool for self-help and self-control, you should listen in to my discussion with Steve. Based on his book and on this discussion, I have not eaten dinner in three weeks as an experiment in intermittent fasting. Here are my results. I fall asleep faster at night. My heart rate is lower when I fall asleep instead of falling throughout the night. I sleep longer. My aura ring reports more deep sleep and REM sleep, and I recover from exercise faster. Oh, and I have been slowly losing the little bit of belly fat that I put on when I hurt my knee earlier this year. I am totally serious. This is a big deal. Ready to learn from Steve? All right, let's talk to Steve Hendricks about the oldest cure in the world. Steve Hendricks, welcome to the Wise Athletes Podcast. It's great to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. Steve, it's a pleasure having you on today. Great. Steve, I I have to say that um, I have been enjoying your book so much. You are, just so that we can uh, be clear with the audience here, you are not our normal sort of guest. You know, we typically are having, you know, coaches or PhDs in something or medical doctors in something. You're kind of a normal person. (laughs) But as a profession, you're a nonfiction writer who does research on a topic, and then you write some material, whether it's an article in a high-end magazine or, in this case, a book called The Oldest Cure in the World, and it's a book about fasting. Is that right? That's exactly it. Yeah. I mean, what the book is about, it's about the uh, history of fasting, the science of fasting, and my own experiences with the practice all three of those threads sort of woven in and out together. And you're right, I am not uh, an expert in the sense that I have a PhD in this. I have been writing about fasting on and off for the last decade or so. So I've, I've you know, got a bit of knowledge and I've been doing it myself. So I've got some knowledge from that. But you're right, what I do is I take what the experts say, try to you know put that into some coherent narrative that would hopefully be lively and page turning for the readers. And, you know, it, you can tell me if I've succeeded or not, but that's what the book aims to do. Well, fantastic. And I will say that you are an excellent writer. Thank you for writing this book. You're more than just an effective communicator. You're an entertainer. I'm enjoying myself learning about fasting. And I'm not a newbie at fasting, but almost everything I'm reading either rings true from my own personal experience or is interesting or makes me laugh. So (laughs) it's an excellent piece of work. Tell us, why did you turn your talents to fasting? What a weird topic. (laughs) It is indeed, isn't it? So, you know, I first wrote about fasting about a decade ago, and and I... That story, which appeared in Harper's Magazine, was sort of built around this fast of 20 days that I had done. And that fast was done for the same reason that a lot of people come to fasting, which is that in my 20s and 30s, I had, like a lot of people, just been putting on a pound, two pounds every year. And by my mid-30s, I found myself weighing 30 pounds more than I cared to weigh. So I turned to fasting for uh, weight loss. Um, but that isn't actually how I, you know, first got interested in it. I first got interested in it because I was interested in learning about longevity and health. You know, what could I do to become healthier? Uh, and I had originally turned to calorie restriction, which is simply eating fewer calories than you need every day. So if you need 2,000, maybe you only eat 1,500. And in every lab animal practically that it's ever been studied in, uh, you know, when they're calorie restricted, they uh, are, are far less diseased, they live far longer, and many of these uh, attributes appear to uh, translate to humans as well when they're calorie restricted. But oh my God, is it impossibly hard to do? You are starved the entire time. You're just gnawing with hunger. You're, you know, every waking hour and probably you're sleeping once as well. It's just terrible. So, yeah. so, but in coming across, when I was looking into the calorie restriction research, I of course came across fasting, which is the ultimate calorie restriction, right? Mm-hmm. Zero mm-hmm. calories. Mm-hmm. And the irony is, is that when you do, certainly when you do a prolonged fast of multiple days, you are actually less hungry. In fact, eventually you're not hungry at all uh, when you fast. And that's because when we fast, if you go long enough, you break down your fat, 
One of the breakdown products of your fat that your body runs on is called ketone bodies. And these ketone bodies, this is where the word ketosis and the ketogenic diet and so on come from. Yeah. Those ketone bodies suppress hunger, which is just a beautiful thing. So people often say, where did you get the willpower to do a 20 day fast? And my answer is if I had to have willpower to not eat for 20 days, I would have never done it. I got, I'm, I'm human, I, you know, but by the second day or so, your hunger disappears. If you fast regularly, your hunger will disappear after a few hours, which if you have trouble skipping meals, may be really foreign to you, but it's like running. Uh, once you get used to going out for, you know, runs, it used to be maybe a jog around the block was really hard, but now you're jogging, you know, five miles with less pain than you had that first time you went jogging around the block. Same thing right. with fasting. So that's, right. that's how I, I came to it. Uh, originally I did this long fast. I lost the weight I wanted to lose. Uh, I eventually have discovered fasting is great at weight loss. I mean, you don't eat you lose weight. There's just no debate about it. It happens to everyone. It's great. However, if you go back to eating what you were eating that put on the weight in the first place, uh, then you're going to put the weight back on after your fast. So I had to change my diet. And that, that's all to say that, um, you know, fasting is great for weight loss. It's not the cure-all. It's not going to be, you know, your, your only solution for most people. So that's how I originally came to fasting was this weight loss. Um, but I became more interested over the years in how fasting can prevent us from getting diseases that we don't yet have, and in some cases, even reverse diseases that we do have. And that's what a large part of the book is about. Yeah. And that really is interesting. Uh, and I have to take a step back here and just say, right now we're in sort of contrarian times. I think that people are looking for solutions that have been hidden or have been lost or that maybe in conspiracy ways, modern medicine is hiding from us. And I can't really say that I'm immune to this sort of thinking myself, even though it sounds ridiculous. And partly, I think when it comes to fasting, I heard of fasting when I was a kid uh, as related to religion. And then, uh, you know, and it was something that like, you know, Native American Indians did and uh, Benjamin Franklin and the ancient Greeks. And, you know, and so it was this powerful tool of the ancients, this this ancient wisdom. And I was always really interested in it, but of course it was impossible. I mean, who can like go without food? I, I, not me. I mean, I, I can't go, you know, back when I was a kid, I couldn't go three hours without eating. And so it was this, fasting was this non-approachable thing that, that I sort of admired but never felt like it was something I could do for myself. Uh, but it became a thing in modern times where people were talking about it again. And maybe it was always there sort of in the background, but just not visible enough to regular people like me that uh, we would hear more about it. But as a part of me at one point doing a keto diet and becoming what they call fat adapted which was a horrible process of getting this fat adaptation, I suddenly found that this was true, that your body can adapt to burning its own fat and you do not get hungry. And therefore, I thought fasting was something I could do, and I did fasts. Now, I never was able to do you know, I never got help and I didn't know what to do. And so I never did anything more than a three-day fast. And actually the way, the reason that I ended at three days is because every time I would get to three days, it was either eat some food or kill some people. And so, you know, I was obviously not doing something right, but still three days, you know, was pretty impressive, you know, to most people that I encountered. The problem with, I think, with fasting and maybe it's true for calorie restriction as well, uh, as you point out, is that even if it's a great tool, it just feels like it sucks all the joy out of life. I mean, food is like one of the last things left that we can control. We, you know, we have to work hard for a living and we don't, we can't sleep as well or as long as we want and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, no matter how horrible my day has been, I can eat something delicious. I can just go right to the store and buy it and eat it. And even if it's bad for me and I know it, I can have that moment of joy. And to fast, I have to give that up. 
So that's what makes, to me anyway, fasting so hard. So even though I have done it and I appreciate it, now I haven't encountered these like health benefits that you've described and I, and I do want to hear more about that, but as a weight loss tool, oh yeah, I totally understand it and have used it myself. Still, in when it's time for my next fast, oh my God, I don't want to do it because I got to give up that joy. So anyway, I'm, I'm, I'll be interested in, in, in hearing uh, what you have to say about that. And what I would like to cover today, if if we can fit it all in, and I, I and your book is quite big, so I'm, and imagine that that's about, you know, half a percent of what you know. So there's probably way too much here that we could cover, but I would love to hear a little bit more about your personal story of fasting to lose weight and then fasting for health. What have you learned in your research that would, that we could all uh, learn from things like how to do it how to avoid this joylessness, things to not do wrong, you know, like how to, how to not break a fast and, and things like that. And then the, this last bit, which is maybe the, the main reason that I, I wanted to talk to you in the first place was how do we fit this business of not eating and balance it into a life that where exercise is an important part of living. We like to exercise. I mean, you know, this podcast is for people who they're athletes and they like being an athlete and they exercise not just for the health benefits, but for the fun of it. And, oh, if I'm not eating, then surely I must have to give up my exercise. Is that right? Hopefully the answer is no. And how do I fast and not lose all my muscles that I've worked so hard for over my life and I don't want to lose because, you know, I don't want to get sarcopenia. Anyway, so that'll be a key area, and I want to make sure that we leave room for that, if you can uh, touch on that. What do you think about those three areas? Yeah, so that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, what I, so what I would say is we've been talking about prolonged fasting, this fasting for multiple days. Even yeah. some people do it for weeks or months under medical supervision, and that's important, but that is only, uh, you know, the fasting doctors who run fasting clinics only recommend doing a prolonged fast about once a year. I mean, their recommendation is if you're in, in you know, pretty good health, uh, you know, come and fast uh, for seven days under supervision. And uh, if all checks out, then you're done. That's sort of just a housekeeping maintenance fast. If you have some serious condition, you've got rheumatoid arthritis or high blood pressure or something like that, then it's a whole different protocol. You would uh, definitely do that under medical supervision. But so the short answer is these prolonged fasts, it's not like you have to make yourself do one every month or your health is going to fall apart. All right. Okay. So the, I think an important thing to know is there are basically two broad types of fasting. One is the prolonged fast. The other is daily fasting, which is the most common form of what people refer to when they talk about intermittent fasting. So how to work uh, fasting in, into your life and keep it joyful and not get in the way of your workout and all this stuff, highly recommend daily fasting. Now, the first thing to know is we're all doing it, right? Every single one of us, we stop eating at night. We don't, or whenever it is, we stop eating. We break fast in the morning with breakfast or that coffee with cream in it, whatever it is. Yeah. We're fasting. The very interesting thing that's happened with the science in the last like about five years, really, 10 at most, is that scientists have, have asked this question, well, if we're doing this fast anyway, are we healthier if that fasting period is longer each day? And the answer has come back in an emphatic yes. Um, we start to get improvements in our health um, at about 12 hours of fasting each night, okay. going to as high as 18 hours of fasting each night. So an eating window each day of six to 12 hours. The benefits increase with the narrower and narrower that your window gets down right. to at least six hours. It's possible that there may be more benefits at four hours or even two hours, but scientists haven't tested it and they have their doubts about cramming all your food into you know, your digestive system in a single meal or a couple hours or something like that. Anyway, so we know that eating in a shorter uh, window helps. Why does it help? The reason is, is that, okay, our bodies are making repairs all day long, right. all right? If, if they weren't doing it, the three of us wouldn't be here two years from now. We'd all be dead. So these repairs going on at the cellular level are extremely important. Here's the catch. Those repairs only happen at a very low rate most of the time because our body is so busy doing all the other stuff that takes up our lives. 
So the biggest of those, one of the biggest anyway, is digesting our food, processing the nutrients from the food, putting those nutrients to work in cells in every single part of our body. It's an enormous labor. When we give our bodies a break from that labor, all right, our bodies take that opportunity of that rest to uh, accelerate the repairs. And that's why longer fasts are good because we get more of the repairs. Now there are a couple of catches here. One of them is that it's not as though we eat our last, whatever it is, carrot or Big Mac or a bowl of ice cream. And then two minutes later, our body says, oh, we're done eating. We're gonna switch to ramping up the repairs. It doesn't happen that way. The reason is that there's a big metabolic cost to the body to switching from this digesting and processing nutrients mode to repair mode. And it doesn't wanna jump over to repair mode if you're just gonna shove some french fries or an apple or whatever in your mouth 30 minutes or even two hours later. So it mm. waits until it's absolutely certain that we're done eating. Mm. And so that period, that, that waiting period is six hours. So we don't start going into this repair mode until six hours after our last calories. And even then that repair mode just sort of, it ramps up very gradually until about 12 hours when we hit this kind of overdrive repair mode, and then we're getting some serious repairs. So that's why I say a 16 hour fast, let's just say each night, a 10 hour, excuse me, eight hour eating window each day um, is so good because we, we hit repair mode and after six hours, and then we're in repairs for 10 hours, four of those hours in the overdrive mode. The problem is most of us studies show are actually eating across something caloric, eating or drinking something caloric, 14 or 15 hours a day. We're only fasting nine or 10 hours a night we're only getting three or four hours in slow repair mode. We're never getting to overdrive repair mode. So mm. that's why these longer fasts are useful. Now, we can all do this. Um, we're already fasting however many hours you're fasting a night, whether you're only doing it nine hours or whether you're doing it 12 hours. Uh, the, the way that scientists recommend to me that, that we approach this uh, is to keep track of, you know, what's our eating window right now, and then let's try to narrow it to something that we feel comfortable with. You know, figure out you're eating 14 hours a, a day, fine, knock an hour off it this week, see how that feels. If it goes well, next week, try knocking off another hour or a half hour, whatever works for you. Get it down to what you're comfortable with, get it down under 12 hours, you will get health benefits. The more you can knock off, the more benefits you get. The other piece of advice, or the other finding, I should say, that, that scientists have come up with that is extremely important is earlier windows are better than later windows. Calories mm. eaten earlier in the day tend to uh, make our bodies healthier than calories that we eat later in the day. Mm. That probably is consistent with what's good for our circadian rhythm as well. Calories helping to wake us up and tell the body, time to get up and go do your thing as opposed to eating when your body is trying to wind down. And so some parts of your body are getting a signal to do things and other parts of your body are getting the signal to wind down and go to sleep and see so getting a kind of a mixed signal. Is it, so is circadian rhythm a part of this strategy of maybe eating earlier in the day and then skipping later? That's exactly it. Our circadian rhythms have hardwired our bodies to process nutrients most efficiently in the morning and early afternoon. So by mid-afternoon, uh, that processing efficiency just drops. And um, when we eat food later in the afternoon, in the evening, especially late at night, food lingers in places and nutrients linger in places they're not supposed to linger. Yeah. So, so for instance, our insulin, which moves the glucose, the blood sugar from our meal, out of our arteries and into the cells where it's used as fuel, yeah. we want the glucose in the cells, not in the arteries, because it stays in the arteries, it dings up the walls, hardens the arteries, we get atherosclerosis, we can get all sorts of other terrible diseases. Um, insulin works great in the morning and early afternoon, but come mid-afternoon and evening, the insulin factory shuts down. When we eat later at night, glu glucose lingers in our bloodstream uh, with all kinds of havoc that comes from it. Um, this mechanism is so powerful that you can give the same meal to a pre-diabetic person at seven in the morning and again at seven at night. And although after the morning meal, they test fine, after the evening meal, they test fully diabetic. Some of them will. Same, same thing happens with healthy people after the late meal that some of them will test pre-diabetic. 
So it's just a very potent force. There was one study that brought this home to me of 15,000 attempted suicides in Sri Lanka, uh, where a lot of people are farmers, the market has decimated them, and they drink their own pesticides to try to kill themselves. It's just a terrible situation. Turns out that people who did that, who drank the poison in the morning, were twice as likely to succeed in killing themselves as people who drank the poison in the evening. And the reason for that was that in the morning, their bodies so efficiently processed this nutrient, if you want to think of it that way, this poison, just shuttled it all throughout their bodies. And by the time they were found and rushed yeah. to the hospital, it was too late to save most of them. Whereas when people were found in the evening, their uh, nutrient processing mechanism was so yeah. slowed down that the poison hadn't gone all through them. They could often be gotten to in time and gotten to a hospital and saved. So it's just a super hardwired part of our uh, a body um, that we apparently can do very little to change. So what scientists have found in their studies is the healthiest eating windows seem to be uh, starting about an hour or two after we wake up in the morning and then continuing for six, maybe eight hours. So a, a typical window under this plan would be like eat between 8.30 a.m. and 2.30 p.m and then don't eat the rest of the day or evening, which I know sounds insane because it sounded insane to me when I first learned this. I thought, that's crazy. I love eating dinner. I was a late night eater. It's, it's the most social meal of the day. I, mean, I could go down a half dozen reasons why it's just nuts. But when I tried it, because I, I like to experiment and try things, and yeah. I like to follow the science, I actually found that it was super easy to do. Uh, because I had more energy, um, you're burning more of these ketones, as I mentioned, so you're not actually hungry in the, at night as you would expect that you might be. Yeah. It just worked out really easily. Now, I'm pretty lucky because I'm a freelance yeah. reporter and I get to work at home, I can set my own schedule. A lot of people can't do it and a lot of people wouldn't wanna do it. And for those people, scientists think they have a compromise. And that's to follow the old adage to eat breakfast like a king, wow. lunch like a prince, and dinner like a pauper. It actually turns out to be good advice. Uh, if you just stack more of your calories in that morning and early afternoon period, you will be digesting most of your calories very efficiently. And then if you eat dinner, eh, just try to keep it a little light, try to keep it a little early. Um, and that will you know, give us a lot of the benefits they think. So we still have this like loss of joy aspect here, but I guess if even though maybe we give up some of the benefits of this uh, super repair mode, I, I can't remember the words exactly, the, where after 12 hours, we're getting sort of extra uh, heavy duty repair. And we maybe we lose some of that if we're having a small dinner into that second 12 hours of the day. Still, if it's a small meal, and it doesn't take much energy to digest it, then we're not we're not digesting food all night long when we're trying to sleep. So we we can get some of the benefit and we don't have to give up all of the pleasure of eating with our family, et cetera. And maybe and maybe that's just a good stepping stone. Maybe you a person could do that. I'm thinking of myself here as a way of trying to make this transition and and then figure out how to do more of the 18 hour thing that doesn't include a dinner. Cause I, I actually have tried it. I, I was listening to some of your podcasts and I've been actually been hearing about this skipping dinner is the most healthy thing. And I just have never been able to do it. Dinner is my favorite meal. I get to look forward to my dinner all day long. And, and if I don't get, have dinner, then I don't have my dinner to look forward to. And so it was just this terrible conundrum, but I decided I was going to do it. And so Sunday, uh, yeah, Sunday night, I had my dinner at 2 p.m. It just all worked out. I had done a, a hard workout in the morning and I'd had an early breakfast. And then by two o'clock, I was starving. And so I decided I'm going to do it. I'm going to have my big meal right now. And then I'm not going to have dinner. And I did that. And, I, and it was like no problem. And then Monday, uh, I went to work. And I just happened to that day have a business meeting that included lunch. And so I came home and did not have dinner. And I thought, look at me, I'm doing it. And at midnight, I woke up starving. And I thought, oh my God, <laughs> how am I going to do this? And so 
I'm a work in progress, uh, but I'm committed to doing this. And so tonight, no dinner. Yeah. So the, the one the one tip that I would give, if I may, is um, you do have to get all your calories in. So, you know, when people talk about intermittent fasting, you skip breakfast or you skip dinner. That's one way of saying it. But a better way of saying it is eat your dinner earlier, you know, or eat your breakfast later, whatever end you're doing it on. Get your full three meals, your snacks, whatever. Get your full 2000 calories or if you're yeah. exercising a ton, 3000 calories, whatever it is. Be sure you get all that in in your six hour, eight hour, 10 hour, whatever your window is. Because yeah. if you don't, yeah, you sure as hell will wake up hungry in the middle of the night. That's just, it is yeah. going to happen. It's unsustainable. So this is not, you know, an attempt to, to try to cut 500 calories out of your day by stealth. This is a, you know, an attempt to get all your calories, the same amount of food in a narrow window. Yeah. And in fact, some of the best studies that have been done on this, um, they're ones where they control very tightly. They have a control group that's eating just normally. They're eating across, you know, 12 or 13 hours. They're eating their full 2000 calories. And then they have the other group eat the exact same meals, just squished within, you know, this narrower window yeah. often early in the day uh, and they get fantastic results, but they wouldn't be able to have the compliance. No one would be able to stick with the trials uh, if they didn't give them all those calories, which yeah, yeah you got to get. And ultimately, I think that was the problem that I had is that because I am trying to get a twofer here, uh, you know, I'm trying to get these uh, metabolic health benefits from having longer periods of no food, and I'm trying to lose a little body fat. So yeah, I made that bed and and now I got to lay in it. Well, you, you can um, undereat a little if you're currently overeating. I guess that would be the one modification to what I just said. So if you, let's say you need 2000 calories and right now you're eating 2300 a day, you can use the opportunity of, you know, time restricted eating as the scientists call it to yeah. cut back down to that 2000. But yeah. if you cut down to 1800 or 1700 or 1500, you're going to wake yeah. up in the middle of the night hungry. Okay. So talk about, let's shift gears here and let's talk about this business of, Oh, if I'm going long periods of time without protein, then am I am I going to be eating up my muscles? Is my body going to go after my muscles? We've had people on the podcast who are talking about how, oh, you know, every four or five hours, you need to get a bolus of uh, leucine with enough of essential amino acids, uh, you know, blah, 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 blah. But here we're talking about, oh, we're going to, every single day, we're going to have these long periods of time with no calories. So in your research or even in your personal experience, um, what happened to your muscles? Yeah, so I'm not aware of any science to support the idea that you need to constantly be eating throughout the day. In fact, I think the weight of the science has, you know, that, that used to be a very common thought. Yeah. Uh, you know, people were told, you know, when I was growing up, you know, eat 12 times a day or something. Um, and the science has moved far away from, from that. Uh, as far as muscle shrinkage, um, no, there's no evidence that that happens to any significant degree in this form of daily fasting that we're talking about. And in fact, there have been studies, there was one study of bodybuilders in Italy uh, that tracked them, you know, they were put on a time-restricted eating window, I think it was about eight hours. Um, and then compared with other bodybuilders who weren't put on such a window, they had, um, not only did they not have, you know, diminishment in their muscles and their, you know, ability to, uh, you know, whatever bench press or squat or what have you, yeah. um, they, some, and on some metrics actually fared better than, uh, the group that was eating all the time. So we have no indication that this is um, damaging to, to muscles at all. And, you know, one of the reasons may be, you know, people who are intense athletes, right? One of the things they're really trying to manage is inflammation, right? Mm -hmm. You work out, your muscles get inflamed. It's a natural process. They repair themselves. Uh, and then, you know, the inflammation eventually goes away and you go work out again. All right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What is clear? from both um, this daily fasting that we're talking about and the prolonged fasting, the multi-day fasting that we were talking about earlier, is that one of its great benefits is that it's reducing inflammation systemically throughout mm. the entire body, all right? Mm. So if you're getting that benefit, that may offset, you know, whatever drawbacks that there may be from not getting a constant infusion of amino acids or something. On the other hand, we have a 
really mounting ton of evidence that is starting to suggest getting too many amino, amino acids may be a problem. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm not convinced that that's would be a solution for athletes is to just keep taking protein, protein, protein. But setting that aside, the short yeah. answer is no, there seems to be no indication that it's harmful. And there are several indications that it's helpful. Is that also true for extended fasting? Yeah. So with extended fasting, your muscles are going to shrink. Say you go to a fasting clinic and you fast for 10 days under medical supervision. Yeah. Right. Your muscles will shrink. Now, have you lost muscle? Not necessarily. There have been some studies using DEXA scans, these really yeah. uh, sophisticated body scanners, uh, and it doesn't appear that the muscle loss is all that great. Remember that your muscle is made up of, you know, if we look at it and see a muscle, right? Fine. But that's just what we're seeing on the surface. There's a lot of fat inside muscles. And particularly with our diet that we eat in America, a lot of us have intermuscular fat that's just sort of riddled through our muscles. Yeah. We also have a lot of water. When you fast, you, uh, you unload some of your water and you burn your fat. A lot of people who I've talked to said, oh my God, I fasted, I loved it, it was great. It did this, that, and the other for me, but my muscles shrank to nothing. And I always say, well, how do you know that was your muscle? And they're like, well, you know, it used to be this many centimeters around. And at the end yeah, of the fast, it yeah. was a centimeter or two centimeters less or whatever. I said, okay. And then what happened when you refed? Oh, it just, you know, grew right back. Uh -huh. um, and that's the common story. Um, okay. And if, if so, so if the muscle loss, you know, let's, let's just say hypothetically, some of it actually is actual muscle loss. It's not just fat and water. To the extent that that's happening, it may be good for us. So it will help to explain when our body is making repairs in a fast, one of the things that it's doing is breaking down old and worn out parts, right? It's recycling some of them and putting them to use in other places and others it's just flatly getting rid of and burning for fuel or flushing out our, our urine. So it's doing that when, it, when we fast, it's getting rid of the old parts first. Uh -huh. It doesn't seem to be getting rid of our healthy stuff. It knows it has this intelligence that evolution apparently has equipped us with to figure out this part's in trouble, this part's too far gone, let's get rid of it. Then when we refeed, we rebuild the stuff that was broken down. Right, so right. to the extent that it's even true that our muscles shrink during a fast, it may be good for us. Now I have to caution there, I don't want to turn fasting into a panacea or, or you know, a cure-all, and I don't want to pretend we know everything. Yeah. We don't know for a fact that that is happening. Fasting doctors and scientists believe that is probably what is happening. We don't have the research to say. What we can say is that people who uh, have muscle shrinkage during a prolonged fast, uh, the muscle regrows after the fast without any problem. And that seems to be independent of age. It may take a little bit longer as we age because we build muscle a little more slowly uh, to get the muscle back, but we're talking a matter of days. We're not talking like six months to you know get back to where you were before your fast. So gotcha. it seems to be uh, not a problem. Okay, well, it's interesting to hear. Uh, you know, the the magic of autophagy has has been uh, floating around the internet for some years now, and we want it. I'm not sure exactly how to get it. So let's see. So that was some of the stuff that I wanted to talk about. We haven't yet spoken about your personal story or just sort of the general learnings, you know, in terms of like body health benefits. And let me prime the pump here. One of the things that has always aggravated me, troubled me, is this business of me not really being in control of myself. You know, people are always talking about how we have free will and by God, I don't have free will because when I'm staring at that brownie, I can't say no. I say, I'm not eating and I'm not eating or I'm not, okay, I'm not eating another one, you know? And if there's another one in the house, I'm eating that one too. And I, you know, I just can't, I, you know, I, and I don't think it's the devil. I, you know, I think that it's actually, I'm not really, in control of myself. I'm a passenger on this being. I, ha I play a big role, but I'm not the whole thing. You know, my brain has its own plan and I have to influence my brain. And one of the things that I thought that I felt was great about when I um, did the ketogenic diet and really it sort of changed me for the good uh, permanently 
was this knowledge. I, I, I got knowledge, certainty that I did not need to eat continuously to have a continuous stream of energy, that my body had a lot of energy in it, and I could eat whenever I wanted, essentially, and, and exercise and do whatever I wanted independent of that. I didn't need to eat a cliff bar before I went to the gym so that I could have energy to do my exercise. That was stupid thinking that I learned by watching television commercials and it's just not true. And I could not eat for days and still go to the gym and have a great workout. So one of the benefits of fasting, I would say for people is that they learn to get control over themselves. They learn what is true about how their bodies actually function. But what else, what else would you say, Steve, that you learned that you think that you know, in your research, other people have learned about themselves or improved their health by way of fasting. Yeah. So first thing is don't beat yourself up over the brownie. Um, <laughs> you are doing what your body was built to do. Um, yes. You know, we have so much um, body shaming around, right? We have so much, if that person is obese, well, they just don't have the willpower or the strength or blah, blah, blah. No, they're obese because they're doing what their body is telling them to do. Yeah. We were forged by evolution to go out and seek the most nutrient-dense food possible, right? Mm -hmm. Because if we did that, we didn't have to spend all day foraging or later hunting, and uh, we were able to spend, you know, more time doing other things that would help our survival so we could procreate and pass on our genes. Right. The most nutrient-dense food is the fattiest, sugariest, saltiest food on the planet which used yeah. to be that was fine that was a great mechanism when the sweetest thing we could get our hands on were blueberries or an occasional you know bit of honey or something right mm -hmm. when the fattiest thing in the world was a i don't know a peanut or a cashew or something an avocado maybe but mm -hmm. now we have hyper engineered food that is just sweeter and fattier and saltier than anything we could imagine so we're going to crave this crap right and we're made to do it and you know, big food knows that. That's why they hire these engineers at big salaries to find out what that perfect sweet spot is and salty spot and fatty spot is that yes. make us want to eat their foods, right? Yes. Okay, so, so it's a very natural device and you're absolutely right. What people commonly report with fasting is that it changes, particularly the prolonged fasting, it changes their taste buds. It can reset their taste buds. If you fast long enough, a great many people who do that will lose their cravings. Mm -hmm. They do not need to have, you know, a, 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 I don't know, a Krispy Kreme or something to satisfy their sugar and fat craving. Believe mm -hmm. it or not, after a seven day fast, when you go off it, vegetables will taste sweeter than they ever did. You can taste the salt in celery. Uh, mm -hmm. My wife and I went uh, for, for, for the book, we went to a fasting clinic in Northern California and fasted for, I think it was nine and a half days. Hmm. Uh, and we broke our fast somewhat differently. For hers, uh, she was given a smoothie. It's only two ingredients were watermelon and celery. Hmm. She could not finish drinking it in one sitting because the celery was too damn salty. The drink wow. was just overpoweringly salty. Now I bet nine out of 10, probably 99 out of 100 of us couldn't taste the salt and celery now because everything we eat is so heavily, heavily salted. Yeah. But so when you taste, there's an actual physical neuroadaptation. Our taste buds reset and that can be extremely powerful and you can use coming out of the fast then to eat healthier things as long as you don't go instantly back to all that really hyper sweet, hyper fatty processed food. Right, you will right. maintain these uh, reset uh, uh, taste buds. Yeah. Additionally, exactly what you talked about, having that knowledge and having that power, and even though it doesn't take a lot of willpower to do a fast, does take a little bit. Having done all that, people off, often come out of a fast feeling far more confident about 
their relationship to food, often about their relationship to their bodies than they did. It's a really beautiful thing to see. You see these people who've been struggling with, you know, food addictions basically for yeah. two, three, four decades, you know, uh, some of them, you know, I've talked with people who are 60, 70 years old and they're like, this is after a fast, this is the first time that I have been able to approach food in a way that feels sane and healthy to me. So mm -hmm. it's a very real thing. Um, fasting doctors have been noting it for decades uh, and more and more people are discovering it. Awesome. Awesome. What, what kind of like um, medical problems can people use fasting to deal with? Yeah. So uh, prolonged fasting has uh, a long history. We have very credible reports from fasting doctors across the last 150 years, both in uh, North America and in Europe, that fasting can reverse a whole range of diseases, sometimes completely eliminate them. Cardiovascular disease is one of them. Uh, in fact, uh, the largest drop ever reported by any therapy for high blood pressure in the peer-reviewed scientific literature didn't come from a pill, didn't come from a procedure, came from a water fast of 10 days under mm -hmm. medical supervision. In that study, the average drop for people with high blood pressure was 37 over 13 points. That is miles wow. beyond what the best pill can achieve. And the people who were the sickest, the stage three hypertensives, that's the worst form of high blood pressure, they got the biggest boost or drop mm -hmm. as it were. They dropped 60 points in their systolic number, the top number in a blood pressure reading, six zero. That's just off the charts. Wow. So it's an extremely uh, impressive uh, mechanism that's, that's at play there. Fasting, for some reason, is extremely good with um, autoimmune diseases. Researchers wow. aren't entirely sure why, but there are very credible reports, including some scientific studies showing fasting can reverse the symptoms of rheumatoid arthritis, ulcerative colitis, uh, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, uh, yeah. and other autoimmune diseases. It's also really good with asthma and allergies. Uh, for some reason, it does very well at stubborn skin conditions. Hmm. Uh, psoriasis, uh, eczema, even garden variety uh, acne. Doctors have had very good luck, fasting doctors, with reversing those conditions um, through fasting. fasting. There are many reports of reversal of type 2 diabetes through fasting, which is obviously uh, an sure. epidemic now. At this clinic in Northern California, it's called the True North Health Center. Um, the head doctor there, who's been running the place for 40 years, has fasted 20,000 people. He estimates that approximately 80% of his type 2 diabetics go into remission, their diabetes does, after, during a fast. And then after the fast, they maintain it with a very heavily plant-based diet. So it's, it's a wide range of diseases. When Germany's most famous fasting doctor used to be asked, hey, what can fasting cure? His name was Otto Buchinger. He used to say, better to ask me what fasting can't cure because it's a shorter list. And the key thing to know is this, the reason that it seems able to reverse such a wide range of ailments is fasting is not working on one organ. It's not working on one system. It's working in cells to enact repairs, you know, fixing, patching up miscopied DNA, repairing damaged organelles that have been worn out from overuse, increasing the recycling, the autophagy that you talked about earlier. This is happening in cells in almost literally every single part of the body. And when you do mm. that on that fundamental level, apparently we can get some pretty impressive uh, reversals as incredible as I'm sure that sounds. I mean, when I first heard about it, it sounded ludicrous to me. I thought someone was pulling my leg, but we have the science to back this stuff now. Um, and that's part of why I wrote the book. Yeah, and I'm glad you did. Uh, it is not a part of the rational way of thinking. You know, we, we, we all grew up thinking, knowing that if you ate healthy food, it would help make you a healthy person. And if you stopped eating unhealthy food, it would help make you a healthy person. And here we're talking about, even if you're eating healthy food, if you stop eating it, that will make you healthy. It's like, wait a second, didn't you just say healthy food makes me healthy? And so you have to go down this path of faith that your body kind of knows what it's doing. It doesn't need you to help make it healthy. It it has, I guess, 
a million years of evolution. And maybe it's not just human beings. Maybe it's like all animals have this, these mechanisms that are built into us that anticipate that we are going to have periods of time when we don't have food. And we're going to take advantage of that. Sort of like we took advantage of the fact that it's dark some of the time to that. Oh, that would be a good time for us to uh, sleep and not be using our brain so that our brain can kind of get, you know, all its waste products washed out and nutrients and repair done. We'll, we'll do that in the dark because heck, if we were out stumbling around in the dark, we'd probably get killed, you know, by some animal or, or, you know, uh, fall off a cliff. Uh, and maybe this business of sometimes we're not going to be able to eat. The body takes advantage of that opportunity to do these repair mechanisms. And when we are eating all of the time, we're not allowing our body to do what it naturally would do. That's why even giving up healthy food is healthy. That's right. And you're completely right. These repair mechanisms, they go all the way back to, you know, virtually every organism has them in one form or another. They go back to yeast, which we last wow. shared an ancestor with a billion years ago, so that we know that these repairs have been, uh, you know, going on evolutionarily for at least a billion years. Um, and, and you're right, you can eat healthy food and still benefit from a fast because you may have other aspects of your life that aren't healthy. You may have stress at work. You may not be getting your eight hours or seven hours or whatever of sleep every night. You may be, I don't know, living next to a you know toxic dump or something. And fasting seems able to help make up for some of those insults that our body takes day in and day out, even if we are eating healthy food. Now, yeah. if you're eating truly healthy food, uh, which I think the best research says is a diet heavily, heavily uh, favored in uh, unprocessed plants or minimally processed plants, then you probably won't have as much of a need to fast as someone who's, you know, living at McDonald's and Dairy Queen. Mm. But even if you're, you know, as healthy as you can possibly be, stuff happens in life, right? So fasting possibly can help with some of that. Interesting. I guess the the only other thing that I'll throw out here and let you react to it is that I've come to value, I, I don't even know what you call it. It's like a homeostasis challenge point of view. And the idea is that, you know, why is exercise good for you? Why is heat exposure good for you or cold exposure good for you? It's like, that doesn't make any sense either. But if there's something that is naturally if the body is naturally good at and wants to remain good at being able to deal with variation, right? Hot and cold and maybe plenty of food and not plenty of food and other things, maybe having high oxygen and low oxygen, you know, maybe related to exercise, stressing the body periodically, not over much, you know, not, not going two days without any oxygen, that might be too much. But stressing it enough so that your body is having to react to it and say, oh, I'm going to get stronger with that so I can be better at that the next time I encounter that. Those stresses, those minor stresses that you put your body under over time are good for you. And so getting comfortable with being uncomfortable is an important part of being and staying a healthy person over time. What do you think about that? Yeah, so that makes total sense. The analogy to exercise is one that I use as well. I do think that this putting your body through periodic stress uh, is something that's very useful, whether it's fasting or exercise. Uh, and a similar thing happens with fasting as happens with exercise. The more you do it, the more you get used to it, which does suggest that your body is adapting to it. You have fewer side effects, less fatigue, less headache, less nausea, yeah. things like that. So it's really... Uh, I think a great analogy. The one catch to it is that sometimes people take it a little bit far, which is that people say, hey, uh, if it's good to be in ketosis during a fast, uh, some of the time, why don't we be in ketosis all of the time and eat a ketogenic diet year round, year after year? Uh, and the catch to that is, is that we don't have good data to support that. Uh, and I think the reason is because this stressful state that it puts your body in, while it does have some benefits, um, there's a reason that 
ketogenic diets have increases in leaky gut and headaches and atrial fibrillation, early death, uh, narrowed arteries, wow. just a whole list of, of problems with them. And I think it's about like saying, well, you know, it may be great to run a marathon, but should we really be running a marathon every single yeah. day? of every single yeah. year of our lives. So the adaptive stress response, absolutely, I think it makes sense. Uh, we just gotta sort of keep it as a more occasional thing for the prolonged fasts. However, there's no indication at all that there's any problem. And in fact, there's every indication that there are all kinds of benefits from doing the daily fast as just your normal way of eating, your normal pattern of eating every day, day after day. Gotcha, and maybe the occasional extended fast or occasional ketogenic diet excursion, but just not all of the time, perhaps, is Correct. what you're saying. Well, awesome. Uh, so uh, we have run out of time, Steve, even though we didn't get to everything I wanted to. We got most of it. And so thanks for that. I wanted to leave a little bit of time here for you to add anything else that um, you think is important to get out here. And surely you've got to tell us how to find you, how to find your book online. Yeah, so the book, The Oldest Cure in the World, is available anywhere books are sold. My favorite place to go, uh, if you don't go to your local bookstore, is a place called bookshop.org, which is a consortium of uh, local bookstores. And when you buy from them, the money goes to your local bookstore or your nearest one awesome. to you. So find me at stevehendricks.org. And the important thing to know about that, my website, is that there is a tab there for uh, frequently asked questions about fasting. And it's got, I don't know, 30 or 40 questions with 10,000 words of answers. So uh, you're right. There's an awful lot to cover. It's a big topic. And if people have more questions, they can often find them answered there. Awesome. I have been there and there is a ton of content. So that's great. You, I'll, I'll put the link to that uh, website in the show notes and then that'll do it. Steve, thank you for your time, sir. This has been really great. I haven't finished your book, but I'm most of the way through it, and I'm definitely going to finish it. And thank you for writing it. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. All righty. Have a great night. Bye-bye. Thanks. <laughs> thank you so much for listening in to my discussion about fasting and intermittent fasting with Steve Hendricks. You can find more information about Steve and his book, The Oldest Cure in the World, in the show notes. While you're there, you can sign up to take a free fitnesses practices assessment, send us a question to address on the podcast, see all of our episodes, subscribe to our podcast, and you can sign up for our newsletter. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with your friends. That'd be a great help. Thanks again.